You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I would like to extend a warm welcome to all of our viewers around the world who have joined us for this public event on the Group of 20, or G20. This virtual conversation is hosted by the Overseas Development Institute, a global think tank based in London, UK. With the 15th meeting of G20 heads of states convening virtually this coming weekend, and with Italy about to assume the forthcoming presidency from Saudi Arabia, it is my pleasure to moderate this discussion on the G20 as an institution of global diplomacy and governance in a COVID era. My name is Nalima Golrajani, and I'll be chairing this event today. I'm a senior research fellow in the Development and Public Finance Program at ODI. This stellar team is focused on understanding how to marshal global financial and organizational resources to resolve collective challenges that prevent marginalized communities around the world from thriving. We seek to understand the kinds of changes needed from the international system to deliver results fairly, and we partner with a range of governments, foundations, and civil society actors to achieve this mission. But before we start, I just want to have uh, to present a few housekeeping rules for this event. The chat box should now be open just below the live stream video. Um, we will have a Q&A um, in this discussion today, so please introduce yourself in the chat box and submit any questions you have for our panelists in there. If you're on Twitter, we'll be using the hashtag G20 Saudi Arabia for this event. My colleagues, Megan and Wahida, will be monitoring the feed for questions and comments as well throughout the event. And the event is being recorded and we'll upload the video and audio of the file on the webpage in a couple of days' time. So the G20 brings together 19 countries plus the EU and controls roughly 80% of the world's GDP. Founded in 1999 and aiming to discuss policies pertaining to international financial stability, in 2008, it was announced the group would replace the G8 as the main economic council of wealthy nations. Since then, the G20 has wide, noticeably widened its agenda um, to include topics ranging from tourism, clean energy, and agriculture. It's become the most visible forum for integrating the world's emerging pro powers into a global system of governance. Though there, are, though there are concerns expressed about this representational legitimacy as a selective club um, where membership is by invitation, this selectivity is also sometimes viewed as the source of its potential effectiveness and impact. And yet the weakness of the G20 in mounting a quick fiscal response to the first truly global pandemic of the information age has been immensely damaging to its credibility and that of multilateralism more generally. Rightly or wrongly, the G20 has been described by former Prime Minister Gordon Brown as having gone AWOL in its corona response, which represents nothing short of a death sentence for the world's poorest people. The point of this session is not to argue over the details of the G20's fiscal response to COVID. Rather, we want to understand the underlying organizational and institutional features that are catalysts for the full range of its successes and its failures. We want to use this session to identify critical changes for the G20 to remain a signature institution of global governance with the capabilities to resolve the inevitable global challenges that lie ahead. It's for this reason that ODI has decided to host a discussion on the possible institutional and organizational reforms that might reinvigorate the G20, which could be picked up under the new presidency of Italy.
The world simply needs the G20 to succeed. Now we are looking for the best ideas to enable this success. So with that, it's my pleasure to introduce our panel of accomplished experts who have both worked on country delegations to the G20, extensively researched the G20, and advocated for its reform and overall improvements. Dr. Cecilia Nahan is an Argentine national and alternate executive director at the World Bank Group, representing the constituency of Argentina, Bolivia, Chile, Paraguay, Peru, and Uruguay since February 2020. Between 2012 and 2015, she served as a Sherpa of Argentina to the G20 and ambassador of Argentina to the United States. Dr. Nahan is a seasoned economist specialized in international affairs and development with more than 20 years of experience in public policy, diplomacy, and academia. Secondly, we have John Curtin, Dr. John Curtin, excuse me. Dr. Curtin is director and founder of the G20 Research Group and G7 Research Group co-director of the BRICS Research Group and co-director of the Global Health Diplomacy Program, all based at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at Trinity College at the University of Toronto, where he's professor of political science and Canadian foreign policy. He is visiting professor at the School of International Relations and Public Affairs at the Shanghai Inter International Studies University as well, and author of China's G20, Gover G20 Governance and G20 Governance for a Globalized World. Welcome, John. Um, and lastly, but not least, we have Dr. Ratan Roy. Dr. Roy is ODI's Managing Director for Research and Policy. His work is mainly focused on fiscal and macroeconomic issues pertinent to human development in developing and emerging economies. Ratan was formerly the Director and CEO of the National Institute of Public Finance and Policy in New Delhi. He's previously worked as an economic diplomat at the United Nations Development Programme and as an economic advisor with the 13th Finance Commission, New Delhi. Welcome, Hatton. Thanks to all three of you for taking the time to share your expertise and thoughts, and thanks to our audience for tuning in. So to start, what I'd like to do is invite each speaker um, to kick off the conversation with short introductory remarks. We will then have your viewpoints expressed around three main themes. Number one, assessing the G20 record to date. Number two, the G20 as a diplomatic club. And number three, the institutional reforms required of the G20. So Ruthen, I'd like to throw the first question to you. Um, and I'll ask the same question to each of each of the panelists to start. Is the G20 the best global forum the world has to marshal, motivate, and coordinate international finance and action to tackle global development challenges? Over to you, Ruthen. Thank you, Nadima. And it's nice to see in my new role uh, with John and Cecilia here again. Uh, the short answer to your question would be a bit like what Mahatma Gandhi was asked when he was asked uh, what he thought of Western civilization. And his answer was, it would be a very good idea. This was, of course, in 1930. So I think uh, the G20 as a leader in the areas you mentioned would have been a very good idea. And I think that very good idea was at the base of two things. One the Obama administration responding to the last financial crisis by saying we need more voices around the table than the G7 or G8. And two, the ambition that a larger group of countries which could bring in more diverse constituencies would be able to tackle the fundamental problems of the day, especially in the areas of macroeconomics and finance. I don't think that has happened. And I do not think that the journey has been 
uh, an uphill one. There are any reasons for this which we can explore. But uh, if, again, we are going to ask, should the G20 be doing this? My response would be, I don't see any other option that allows us to both at the same time recognize the international balance of power that's changed uh, and try and broaden it, while at the same time uh, try and bring in new innovations, new voices, new approaches to the principal problems the world faces, whether it has to do with the sustainability development goals, the problem of getting savings at affordable prices to where they're most needed, or indeed the challenges of sustainable development. And most important there, I think, is the macroeconomic underpinning behind these. I think that uh, this has not happened yet, and we can explore the reasons going forward. I think it's a great pity. But then if we have no other option, we have to try and make this work, uh, especially after this pandemic, when, as Gordon Brown said, G20 has not exactly covered itself in glory. Uh, and I hope this conversation will be one of many that will allow us to do that. Thanks, Ratan. Um, can I invite uh, Cecilia now to come in? Hello, how are you? It's really a pleasure to be here with you today. Uh, I will I will take a, a few minutes to try to share with you what I, why I do think that uh, despite uh, the shortages and the challenges and of course the, the very difficult situation that we're going through at the global level right now, the G20 is indeed a very relevant forum that, that I think we need to strengthen and we need to, to work on. So uh, we know very well that we are facing at the global level an unprecedented health, economic and humanitarian crisis. There are a few characteristics of this crisis that make it absolutely unprecedented. It is synchronized. The whole world is being impacted. 93% of the world countries will be in recession this year. It is regressive. The impact of the crisis we know has not been equal. It has impacted heavily on those that had pre-existing conditions in health terms, but also in terms of economic terms, in uh, informal labor markets. So uh, the people in many countries uh, and in, in many uh, difficult positions are being heavily impacted. So uh, in the case of Latin America, for example, the GDP will fall this year 9%. Uh, we expect that women are being particularly heavily impacted because in our region, 78% of women work in informal sectors uh, heavily impacted uh, by the pandemic. So the, the crisis is clearly not democratic. It is regressive. Is uh, exacerbating pre-existing inequalities and differences. And we also know that the crisis is persistent, you know, even though we're going through uh, some sort of recovery in some economies, the recovery is partial, it is uneven, and we don't know if it's uh, certain. So uh, in a way, this crisis uh, has made uncertainty the, the word of the moment and, and, and really the ruling uh, uh, law of the of the moment. We are facing absolutely extreme levels of uncertainty at the global levels, in health terms, in economic terms, in financial terms. But I think that within this major uncertainty and with these major challenges that we are facing, there are two things that I would like to highlight that are that have become to me more clear over the last months, and that give uh, some hope that we can grow out better from this crisis. The first one 
is that I'm conscious and I recognize that we went into this crisis as a multi multilateral system from a position of weaknesses, right? Uh, the system was not in its best shape. However, over these last months, I can recognize a, a growing uh, rebirth, a growing revitalization of the multilateral system. I think that it became very clear that we are in this together and that international cooperation is not an option. It is an inescapable fate. The Secretary General of the UN, you know, Antonio Gutierrez, made it very clear when he said, no one will be safe until we are all safe. And of course, we come uh, at this moment in countries from different political philosophies, from different ideologies, coming to consensus, sometimes it's very hard. However, I think that there has been a clear recognition and, and progress uh, in the sense of understanding that the multilateral system is the only way that we can deal with a crisis of this uh, magnitude. The Bretton Woods institutions are being active, are being responsive. Uh, the IMF uh, has put in place a significant uh, emergency funding. It has a firepower of up to one trillion to respond. The World Bank has been uh, fast and flexible in its responses. Of course, more needs to be done and it's not enough. But I think that we need to recognize that there has been a revitalization of the system. And specifically the G20, the G20, I think it's a very adequate uh, forum to, to deal with such an emergency of this type, not by itself, not alone, in strong coordination with other multilateral bodies, of course, and of course, in strong coordination and dialogue with countries and with sovereign states. But there are four characteristics of the G20 that I would like to highlight that I think make it particularly suited uh, to address a uh, crisis. And again, I'm not saying it's enough, I'm not saying it's perfect, but I think that we need to recognize that there are some components that are absolutely critical to uh, support uh, a G20 agenda. So first, the composition of the G20 is very important. It is representative of a multilateral order and it has the two major global powers on the same table, the US and China. The size of the G20, I think it, it's good. Yes, uh, it's not too big, it's not too small, it allows for dialogue. The design of the G20, I think, uh, facilitates more informal and flexible settings uh, to discuss new and, and serious challenges like the one that we are going through right now. And the level of the G20, it's very important because it is a leaders forum. So leaders cannot hide, you know, behind their ambassadors, behind their ministers, they have to put themselves, the positions of their countries, and to really commit themselves to the G20 delivering to the people. So this is the first uh, thing that I think we, we can conclude from the first uh, eight, 10 months of the crisis. Yes, the challenge is enormous and unprecedented, but there has been a growing consensus that international cooperation is absolutely key to take us out of this crisis and that the G20 has a relevant role to play. The second one, the second one, uh, which really paves uh, and I think should infor uh, inform our discussions ahead, is that we are in a moment in which we need to reshape, to rethink our multilateral cooperation. Business as usual clearly won't do it, as much as we can argue that the G20 and our Bretton Woods system and the UN are there for a purpose and are there to respond to this crisis, we really need to think out of the box and think how we're going to reshape the grounds and the substance of our multilateral cooperation. The pandemic, we know, we cannot hide from it, has exposed 
the unpreparedness, the fragilities, and also the lack of resilience of the international system, and in many ways of many domestic governments, even from the more advanced economies in the world. So we know that uh, the lack of state capacity in many ways has been uh, exposed, market failures have been rebuilt, uh, and we need to uh, come out better of the crisis. Uh, but the, the good news within all this very uh, difficult situation is that there's an opportunity. I think that uh, there's not only a, a crisis or, or a question of how the system is being responding, but there's also an opportunity to change the paradigm on how we build many of in many ways our international cooperation. Long-standing myths are being challenged, taboos are being broken. Uh, you know that, for example, just to give you an example, a, a few years ago, who would have thought that monetary policy and fiscal policy in countries uh, would have to be so coordinated to respond to a pandemic? Nobody questions uh, the level of government intervention, the level of fiscal support, the level of monetary support that has to be provided in, in situations like this. Uh, the international scientific cooperation that has been put in place, the fact that the vaccine needs to be a, a global public good, uh, the fact that uh, the state has to support uh, and protect the population in these moments. So there are a lot of myths that are being uh, unlocked. In fact, this is being recognized, you know, not only by the World Economic Forum that is talking about a global reset of capitalism, but by the FT, it was very telling, you know, the editorial board uh, article that was published a few months ago, in which the FT mentioned, and, and I, I'm gonna read this, that radical reforms reversing the prevailing policy direction of the last four decades will need to be put on the table and that governments will have to accept a more active role in the economy. So the FT and others are recognizing very openly, very clearly, you know, I think that from all the shades of the political spectrum that we need to make a major reshape of our multilateral cooperation, to strengthen it, to make it more inclusive, to make it more focused on social justice. And this, of course, requires recognizing some of the, the faults, some of the flaws, some of the difficulties of our multilateral cooperation. We have an opportunity, but I think that the opportunity needs to be focused mostly on the substance of the policies. It's not so much in my perspective, about the institutional arrangements. I think that this is the moment to really put social justice, solidarity, taking care of the environment, equality across races, genders, countries, at the core of our multilateral agenda. You know, the president of Argentina has called for the G20 to launch and support a global solidarity pact you know, involving all different types of, of cooperation. And he's not alone. There's many leaders around the world that are really focused on strengthening the system by making it much more inclusive. This is not easy. This is not an easy task. This is a task of a significant challenge. But I think that we have the basis uh, for, for such a, a program ahead. If there's anything that is clear is that this crisis with all of its devastating consequences is an invaluable opportunity 
to reshape the system. And this implies, and I will conclude my, my initial remarks on this, this implies, I believe, working on a policy agenda. We are talking, you know, about building back better. This is kind of the new term of the moment, you know, building back better. Well, what does this mean? What does this mean, building back better at the multilateral level? I think that it means basically reinvigorating our discussions, leaving away, you know, the myths, the old paradigms, uh, and really thinking and being innovative. And this implies an agenda that has to deal with, first, which is the role of the state? We have to recognize the relevance of the role of the state to lead the recovery and to partner with the private sector in a new way. How can we recover and sustain fiscal capacity, which leads us to the discussions on taxation, on debt restructuring, on recovering their sustainability? We also need, of course, to strengthen the firepower of the multilateral system. Many leaders have called for the need to issue special running rights as a key component of the multilateral agenda, as well as to recapitalize and optimize the resources of the multilateral development banks. We need to put a, in place an agenda that uh, addresses the transition to a green economy, taking into account you know, common but differentiated responsibilities by advanced economies and developing economies. We need to talk about economic diversification and how we're going to restructure our economies towards the future. I think that the G20 cannot this do alone, but that we require a strong, well-coordinated, enhanced G20 to tackle this agenda. And that this will only be done if we work together with the UN, with the Bretton Woods Institution, and if we put the priority you know, of multilateral cooperation to respond to the people, to the environment, and to this shared goal that we have to build a more secure, inclusive society ahead. And the G20 is certainly part of the mix. Thank you. Thanks, Cecilia, for that. Um, John, can I invite you to, to come in and, and perhaps even address Cecilia's point that it's actually policy substance that's been lacking as opposed to institutional weakness? Thanks. A good institutions, good processes uh, produce um, a good policies. So uh, the institutions of procedures uh, matter uh, a lot. And thus we look uh, first, I think, in the broadest terms at uh, all of the global governance uh, institutions uh, we have and ask the question, uh, is the G20 the best one? And my answer is clear. Uh, yes, it's the best. And indeed, it's the only one. Uh, there's nowhere else to go. The only choice is between a G20 or a G0 world. And I prefer the G21 because, as Cecilia uh, noted, global threats are great and growing in our increasingly globalized world. To respond, we need global governance at the summit level with the unique authority, comprehensive mandate, and synthetic responsibilities that only country leaders bring. We need the leaders of the most systemically significant states to gather in a compact group that has the globally predominant power in economic, medical, ecological, digital, and other relevant capabilities. 
These leaders now know that their big countries are themselves vulnerable in our globalizing world, just as small countries have long been. So we need these leaders to come face to face as equals to collectively discover solutions that none know the answers to uh, when they just stay home alone or even know what their country's specific interests uh, are. So let's go back to the beginning of a G20 summitry, September 15th, 2008, when the American turned global financial crisis struck, only the G20 responded by rising to the leader's level. The UN didn't, nor did its Security Council Permanent Five, nor did the IMF or its component uh, that Gordon Brown had recently created, the International Monetary and uh, Finance Committee. Nor did the G7 or the G7 plus five that had shown its value at Tony Blair's Glen Eagles G7 summit in 2005, nor the major economies meeting of 17 countries that subsequently rose. Only the G20 rose to the challenge. Since 2008, uh, only the BRICS summit has appeared on the global governance uh, landscape at the summit level. But it quickly focused on the G20 summit. And this year, missing in action. It's delayed its summit, scheduled for September until today, just four days before the G21 takes place. And its compliance with its previous year's commitments has declined to only 72%, well below the G20's 78% so far. So the G20 summit won, and it did so by repeatedly proving its worth. Remember, um, it's big advances. First, it solved the American global financial crisis from 2008 to 2009. Then it prevented the European one, the Euro crisis, from growing global from 2010 to 2012. Next, it stopped any regional ones from erupting for seven years, from 2013 to 2019, until COVID-19 arrived this year to bring us closer uh, to another one. In 2010, the G20 summit did what the IMF and World Bank could not do by themselves reform the voice and vote of their executive boards to give emerging powers a greater place in the ultimate zero-sum game. In 2012 at Las Cabas, the G20 summit uh, produced what I call the Great Transformation by creating the IMF's $500 billion firewall fund. Here, the United States withdrew from its historic role as the global lender of last resort to be replaced by China, Japan, Germany, and almost all the other G20 states. During its first 11 years, G20 summits supported the rise of major emerging economies and many developing ones 
led by China and India. And China today is already back from COVID and on the rise again. The G20 helped lift many people out of poverty and spurred the march to meet the UN's sustainable development goals. So the G20, when you add it all up, has done very well on its first distinctive foundational mission of promoting financial stability and is still doing well on that one to this very day. But it still has a long way to go on its second mission of making globalization work for the benefit of all, not just for the 1% at the top, but also the 1% at the bottom and all those in between. Thanks. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. I, I missed a critical word in that last statement. Were you saying it still needs to do more on the, on the kind of inclusion agenda as compared to its success in promoting financial stability? No. Or were you saying um, it had done enough? No one, I think, uh, will say it has done its adequate job on its second foundational mission. This is what it was designed to do, make globalization work for the benefit of all. It could be the bottom billion, the 1% at the bottom, and everybody uh, in between. So um, financial stability, um, you know, adds first to the bank accounts and um, stock values of the 1% at the top, uh, right? But okay. uh, that's not what um, the G20 was uh, only designed to do. Great, thanks. I mean, we're now going to go into the, the the first thematic focus of the session, which is on the G20's record. So you've sort of ended in the right spot. You know, you clearly say there there's a, a mixed record, um, and so I guess you know what's what's impeding its success on that second that second um, pillar for you. And yeah, what what could we do to to improve it? And I think I had John to start here. So yeah, John and then maybe Ruffin and Cecilia. Uh, glad to do it. Um, overall, uh, the G20 summit, the evidence shows, has been a steadily rising, now substantial success. It moved from a financial and economic crisis response, 2008 and 9, to crisis prevention, uh, the Euro crisis and beyond. And it became a global steering committee for these financial and economic subjects. And you mentioned the broadening agenda for social, ecological, and security subjects too. But the record shows it's done its best by far in its macroeconomic, finance, and even development governance, rather than on these newer, broader subjects. And in the social domain, it's done well only on labor and employment, but very poorly on gender equality, health, uh, migration and refugees, and other things. Its greatest failure has come on the environment and climate change, especially since its performance peaked on these subjects at its Hamburg summit in 2017. And then on the 2020 COVID crisis, its response got off to a very good start. On March 26, 2020, 
its first ever intercessional summit, emergency summit, digital summit, made 47 commitments, and they secured compliance at a level of 72% in the next two months. But the G20 did not prevent the eruption of the severe second wave of COVID that's killing so many uh, today uh, in Europe, Canada, the United States, uh, Americas, uh, and elsewhere. Nor did the G20 help mobilize enough money and enough new power for the World Health Organization to do these things. Why didn't the G20 hold a second emergency summit in September on this? So I think the test will come at its Riyadh summit uh, four days from now. Uh, will it provide safe, effective, affordable, and trusted vaccines for all and simultaneously combat the soaring cases of mental health, uh, domestic uh, violence, non-communicable disease, antimicrobial resistance, and other animal health diseases? Thanks, John. Ruthin, do you want to jump in and help us think through? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure whether I want to agree with John because there's so much of what he said that I want to agree with or profoundly disagree. Uh, I'm not a diplomat, so I can only do one of these two things. I think there is a fundamental Stockholm syndrome problem with the G20 and the ecosystem that surrounds it that people seem to think that commitments made in the G20 and talking about the G20 ecosystem translate into domestic policies or policies that enhance international cooperation. Now, what I agree with John is that was certainly true in 2008. What I don't agree with John is that the process has held that level of engagement since. I think there's an attribution problem there. I do not think that the relative financial stability, certainly we have an Argentine in here, and by no account has Argentina seen financial stability, uh, or for example, the Indian recession, or many other things that bedevil financial markets has been something the G20 has addressed. And that is for me as a finance guy, disappointing because I can assure you that when the G20 was not a summit-based organization, when it was a much smaller organization of central banks and finance ministries, many of this, these, these issues were addressed quite effectively in the G20 of the finance group, not just the quotas. So when you bring in a head of state, you expect a rise in the level of ambition that goes beyond your traditional foreign ministry. And despite the existence of the T20 and the proliferation of working groups and this and that, the G20 has simply not shown the imagination that we saw it through from, I would say, Pittsburgh to London, maybe Paris, possibly Seoul, no more, which is of ideas changing minds, driving how money changes hands. When you take something to a summit level, then the expectation is that you will have new ways of seeing and new ways of doing things. You will have new ideas that will therefore leave the limiting rhetoric of previous ideational frameworks behind and move forward. That's very different 
from what you would expect from a finance ministry and central bank G20, which takes a, 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 a framework as a given and tries to make marginal improvements in that framework, such as the conversation on quotas. So again, I would agree with John that the biggest failure there hitherto has been uh, with climate change and the G20's ability, not willingness, ability to engage with that dimension. It has also not taken on board the change in the kind of leaders we are seeing in many countries in the world, uh, but of course, most emphatically in the G20. Canada is an outlier, perhaps that is why Professor Curtin uh, didn't quite see this, but sitting in India is very clear to me. India, Brazil, China, Russia, the United States, the United Kingdom, have leaders essentially whose, whose mandate and whose quest is to exit from international cooperation in various plurilateral forms, not to engage and enhance international cooperation. That's a reality. Now, since this is a leader's summit, it's within the pay grade of the G20 to engage with this reality and then provide direction to the world as to where we are going. And that has not happened. As a consequence of which, we see this horrendous failure to deal imaginatively and effectively with this pandemic. Because if this pandemic demanded one thing from global leadership, macroeconomics is easy. At some level, when you can't deal with stuff, you leave it alone and hope that pious statements like 2% growth will make things work. Uh, that's okay. The G20 has done a good job in terms of that sort of assurance, but that remains within the ecosystem. But take a pandemic. In a pandemic, the obvious vision you'd expect at the leader's level would be that the instruments to address the pandemic and the solutions to the pandemic, ultimately the vaccines, would be public goods. That has not even been a quest of the G20. For the very reason that the leaders I mentioned and others are thinking in nationalist space. And that's fine. But then I would expect the G20 to calibrate their ambition and tell us what can be achieved, given the shift in political perception in international space. That has not happened. So I think we have a schizophrenic crisis in the G20, which is that the leaders that founded the G20 in 2008, and I agree with John, provided these remarkable successes, have now been replaced by a set of leaders in many countries, not all, for whom their, their worldview, their wealth and charm, their ideology is somewhat different. And an organization's agility would be to take that on board and try and provide solutions to the problems of the day. NATO has done it in the past. The Bretton Woods institutions have done it to the best of their ability in the past. But I'm afraid the G20, like the UN, has spectacularly failed in this political tracking and therefore I'm left in conclusion to wonder whether it is not best that we now scale back our ambitions. The foreign ministries can have their annual summits and jamborees. I have noticed, by the way, that these summits now make it, at least in my own country and countries I've lived in the last 20 years, in the last 15 years, Brazil, United States, Thailand, and India, they move from the front page to page five, which is odd since their heads of state are there. Uh, and that tells me that perhaps we need to do an existential rethink of the G20. We may not have to if John is right. And the Riyadh summit does bring about an imaginative solution to our pressing common problem today. 
which is of immediate urgency, which is the COVID crisis and how we vaccinate and everybody and solve for economic distress as quickly as we can in the coordinated way. If it does that, it will have redeemed itself, but I'm being a bet to you today that four days from now, it will not. Thanks, Ratan. Thank Cecilia, can I invite you to think about this? Um, you know, you suggested it was policy substance that the G20 needed to focus on. Um, Ratan has suggested it's actually the the political leaders um, and the, the challenge of, of the political context within some key states that is perhaps more of the challenge even than institutional issues. Perhaps you could jump in and clarify your view. Hmm. Well, um, the, the size of the transformation that, that we need at the global level to first contain uh, the virus, protect lives, uh, get a vaccine and distribute it massively uh, requires a significant amount of political support, of financial resources, and I think that as well of policy ideas. So I, I don't think that we can think of one of these pieces in an independent way. Clearly, uh, the G20, uh, as part of the club uh, diplomacy, is a forum that is member-driven, as most uh, multilateral organizations. So its level of ambition, its level of transformation, uh, its level of um, change can only depend on what the members of this organization want and what the leadership of this organization promotes. So I think that sometimes it becomes a bit weird to me to listen to like the G20 as it were an institutional construction independent of its members. Of course, it is a reflection of the state of uh, global cooperation at the international level in general. And in many ways, uh, the G20 uh, reflects sometimes uh, at the leaders level, the difficulties or, or the challenges that we face in other multilateral fora. So we cannot think of the G20 as something independent and, and out of the world. No, the G20 is member driven. And of course, its level of ambition uh, reflects the level of common and collective ambition of it, its leadership. Having said this, I believe that there has been uh, some learning, even, even from the mistakes uh, from the past. And, and let me highlight one to give some, some specific idea. And we'll see, uh, as Brian was saying, in the weekend and ahead, if this is included or not. I think that even though I recognize in the record of the G20 that the, two, that the response to the 2008 crisis was very successful on the fiscal and monetary policy, I also think that we need to recognize that there was a decision to reverse course and call for austerity in 2011 that was premature. And I think this really impeded uh, the global economy to have a full recovery, to continue creating the jobs that we needed, and eventually aggravated the inequality problem, which I think has been one of the major issues that the G20 has not been able to address. In fact, the issue of inequality, and I was Sherpa at the moment, and when we push very strongly to be incorporated in the agenda of the G20 in 2013, 2014, was taken by the rhetoric of the G20, but it was never really taken seriously in the policies that the G20 recommended, and clearly not the policies that most of the countries around the world were experiencing. And there's very a lot of available data showing the, the growth in inequality, labor share distribution. So I think that that political mistake of reversing the support early is something that the IMF is cautioning about at this moment. 
and I want to highlight this because I think it's important. The IMF, the World Bank are saying it's very important the support that has been put in place, you know, which is, of course, very different. Uh, you know that, just to make a quick footnote, advanced economies have on average so far allocated 20% of their GDPs to respond to the crisis. Emerging countries, only 6%. Low-income economies, 2% on average. So this is a major problem that we have to deal with. Uh, but even those amounts of support, you know, the IMF is warning, we should avoid a premature withdrawal of it. We should avoid getting into the trap, you know, of the austerity mentality again and, and withdrawal that. So on the economic and financial agenda, I sense there has been some learning. Of course, this is not all of the agenda. We need to keep pushing for uh, the vaccine to be a global uh, good. There's a lot of discussions about this. I don't think it's uh, something that is ruled out of the, of the agenda. There's discussions and there's politics, but we need to keep focusing. And that's where, and I will conclude with this, we need to think that the G20 is also a reflection of the state and should be of the civil society. We need, and, and that's why I value this, this uh, place, we need a civil society pushing leaders, pushing the G20, pushing multilateral cooperation to be more ambitious, to be uh, more bold in, in some of these actions, to put more money into development. Uh, and that's part of the role. And that's why I believe there's an opportunity, there's an agenda, but of course, political decision and leadership will be at the core of, of the response. And I, I trust that we'll have a, a good outcome over the weekend uh, after the G20 leaders meeting virtually in Riyadh. Thanks, Cecilia. Um, I'd like to shift gear a little bit now and really move from talking about the G20's record to club diplomacy as a form of global governance uh, more generally. Now, Cecilia, in your earlier remarks, you talked about one of the benefits of the G20 being its informality at some level, that ability to have those, um, those meetings on the side of the event. Now, obviously, we've gone to a virtual world. Um, the summit is a, is a virtual uh, summit, leader summit this weekend. But, you know, just thinking about the value of club diplomacy, you know, what, what is its value? Um, what are the advantages that it has over full-scale multilateralism? Um, and what are its weaknesses? So I'd like to invite you to reflect on that first. I go, well, I mean, of course, the, the G20 is a selected and, and self-appointed club. I mean, uh, th that's for sure. That's kind of the definition of the G20. You know, that's not a comment. Um, but, uh, but I think that we need uh, and there's value in this more, uh, in this smaller fora because of the informality and flexibility of the dialogue that it allows. And again, as I was saying, multilateral cooperation is uh, as powerful as their mem its members in a way push for and, and want for, but the bilateral negotiations that take place within a multilateral meeting like the G20 summits are very key for the strengthening of the multilateral cooperation itself. Let me give you a few examples. In the Australian, summit, for example, in Brisbane in 2014, the previous agreement that was held between the China and the US on climate change was clearly a very important precondition for that summit being more ambitious in terms of the climate agenda. So again, a bilateral agreement that was part of the larger agenda of the G20 was 
uh, very important there. And I think that uh, the flexibility and the dynamism and the informality are important to think out of the box and to come up with new and different ideas. The more established organizations like the bank, the IMF, the UN with larger bureaucracies, implementation bureaucracies are key to support the work of the G20 and to enrich the work of the G20. But I think that if we want to have a different type of body, it has to keep without a permanent secretariat, being more agile, more flexible, allowing for informal bilateral conversations on the margins. Otherwise, if we try to replicate the G20 to the other forum, I think we will uh, lose the differentiality of the forum, you know. Of course, the G20 is not a universal body. We know that. But there's a very important UN representation of the G20. I think that could be strengthened, should be strengthened. There's room for the UN to be more proactive at the G20, to represent the voices of the General Assembly and all the membership. The ILO, the International Labour Organization, is also universal and key. The WTO. So it's not that there's no other voices at the G20, but by being a representation of the global economy and by having the key actors there, I think it has the institutional design to respond to larger challenges in an agile way. Uh, so that's why I think that now what we need is strong leadership to enhance that institutional setup to deliver more uh, focused uh, responses. Again, thinking out of the box and, and trying to innovate in the policy toolkit to really deliver inclusive solutions, which uh, is something that we need to keep pushing for. Thanks, Cecilia. John, I want to invite you to jump in. You started your remarks by saying that institutions matter for good policy. So what about the comparative advantages of club diplomacy versus full-on representative multilateralism? And we've had another question come in on this topic, which asks, um, for the 1% at the bottom, um, what incentivizes them to trust and believe in this club? So if you can reflect on that inclusion agenda, why should that bottom 1% trust the G20? You're on mute, John. Club and um, clear something uh, up. There is no alternative to club diplomacy. The Bretton Woods United Nations system is still largely controlled by the highly closed clubs of the United Nations Security Council Permanent Five, by the permanently European-headed International Monetary Fund, and by the permanently US-headed World Bank One. No Canadian, no Argentinian, no Indian has ever gotten or can get, from what we know, the top job. These multilateral organizations were born in, designed for, and still largely govern the world of 75 years ago. They had almost 65 years to prove their worth before the G20 leaders found it necessary to create their own summit club. And I began um, with the importance of summitry. The IMF and World Bank have never had a summit. Uh, the Security Council Permanent Five only did in 1992. Now, it is true uh, that the United Nations uh, restarted its summitry after a 45-year sabbatical only in 1990, thanks to a G7 push. But some of its subject-specific high-level meetings are called 
do add value, but they're still mostly on siloed subjects, non-communicable diseases, for example, and only a subset club of leaders actually attend. But all G20 leaders almost always attend their G21s. This year, the UN took a summit sabbatical by delaying its scheduled climate and biodiversity summits until next year. So if you care about the climate and biodiversity crises, the G20 is the only global summit there is to act on them. And as uh, Cecilia um, noted in her opening remarks, the G20 has the best combination of a continuing compact club combining maximum power and global responsibility for all. Then we get to the question of legitimacy, which bears on the 1% at the bottom. And that legitimacy, uh, I think, uh, resides uh, importantly in an act on, on and uh, actually accomplishing that second distinctive foundational mission of making globalization work for the benefit uh, of all. And here, um, I think uh, one can point to um, some things. Uh, the uh, $1.1 trillion um, produced almost on the spot at the most successful summit uh, of all, that was London, April 1st to 2nd, uh, 2009. But there is still a long way uh, to go. And it was only um, in 2013 at the Russian-hosted St. Petersburg summit uh, that the G20 moved from strong, sustainable, and balanced uh, growth to add the word um, inclusive uh, growth, addressing, at least giving top-level attention in principled form to the uh, equality um, agenda. Uh, but when we look um, at the uh, procedural and institutional uh, weaknesses, let me just highlight um, three. First, the demand for global governance is great and growing, but the G20's supply of global governance has actually declined at the summit level from 2011 to 2019. Second, even as its agenda has expanded, the leaders' time together to address this expanded agenda has remained very small. And third, uh, and this bears directly, I think, on the uh, question of um, the bottom uh, 1%, the second African member that was given a seat at the very start in 1999 by the two uh, co-founders, uh, Paul Martin and Larry Summers, Nigeria, has not yet been allowed to uh, take it up. So uh, there is um, a missing um, seat whose time, I think, has come. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Um, Rathan, you, know, you wanted or asked for a G20 that was more focused, smaller. Um, how do you see sort of its club diplomacy um, and I guess if we could sort of, I want to try and transition into the third section a little bit because we're sort of pushed against the clock a bit. Um, you know, the, 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 
the reform and the, the reform that's required of this diplomatic club, if it is indeed the best, least worst option that we have. Thanks. Yeah, I think uh, I'm going to agree with a lot of what Cecilia said uh, by referring to what John said. So we have to understand, I think, what we mean by club. So a club, in the first instance, exists principally to benefit its own members. And having secured that objective, it may then try and address those who are not in the club through benevolent action. So if you ask, to what extent has the G20 benefited its own members? The answer is dependent on what John said and what Cecilia said. Not very much since 2010. And because of the success in maintaining financial stability from Pittsburgh to London, the club, if you will, was able to look at questions that bedevil the club, but also pertain to others. So you have the focus on Africa in the German summit. You have the focus on the fourth industrial revolution and what it means for the world in the, in the, in the Chinese summit. I've forgotten where they had it. I don't think it was Wuhan. Uh, and uh, so on and so forth. So this club has not delivered the kind of benefits that it would make it a successful club that, that people in this way, if I'm on the cusp of joining the G20, say I'm, I'm Bangladesh, and if Bangladesh continues to perform as it is because finally the G20 is a club of the top, roughly, of the top 20 by, by absolute number, GDPs in the world. Bangladesh's view on the G20 is probably going to be that the pain of organizing a summit at some future date outweighs the benefits of being in this club, and that's not a good thing. That was not the case when the G20 was a finance, I'm sorry to keep in this bank, and central bank club, because there the benefits were tangible, because the, the ambitions were modest, that is why. Second, I think what Cecilia said is very important. By now, 12 years down the line, I would have expected the G20 to be functioning principally by relying on, as a club, on the institutions of its member states. It has not done so. Its reliance on multilateral institutions to do the heavy lifting, the heavy analytical lifting continues to be high. The T20, which I've been part of, let's face it, doesn't work. It doesn't work because it neither does what you'd expect experts to do, which is to present detailed and persuasive analyses of global problems which leaders could take seriously, nor does it uh, you know, give you quick policy wins. I've been in the T20 and it tends to fall between these two stools. So do the other satellites of the G20. So there's a lot of um, diplomatic time spent until this year when we all virtual flying in and out to sort of exotic meetings here and there. But the outcomes have been very limited, which tells me that if, again, club diplomacy would be a very good idea, but the necessary conditions, forget the sufficient ones, for club diplomacy to work at this time do not obtain in this club. It is not a club that people would be very eager to join, let's say, in 2020, compared to what I guess it would have been in 2010. So in that sense, I think I agree with both my co-panelists, but that is the analytical outcome I draw from what they're saying. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Rathan. Um, we're gonna go into now a section that's sort of focused on the reform side concretely. And we, we've had one question come in um, that really asks about this saying, you know, can we get towards some tangible solutions? And what are the constituent parts that are ineffective today? Um, what do we really need to reset within the G20? Um, and so 
Um, Ruthan, you know, I had you down to, to kick off this session and, you know, you had alluded to the political challenges of, of our leaders um, in the G20. Um, and that's not something we can easily fix. Um, so so what, what can we do? You know, what, what, is, what is the reform agenda um, given that challenge seems somewhat intractable? Well, I think there are three things we could do immediately. One is for the Troika, well in advance, I'd say even forget India, Brazil today, to start thinking about something that it could propose that India embraces and Italy acknowledges as the one single quantifiable thing that the G20 could do to deliver to the global community as a whole, even if that delivery, as in the case of 2010, disproportionately benefits uh, the richer countries in the world and therefore the G7 followed by the G20. Let's not try and fix that. And obviously, having a global vaccine in terms of what John was saying, making that a public good, for example, and making sure that we all stay the course with this as the primary focus of the G20 to end the COVID crisis and to end the consequences of the COVID crisis as soon as possible would be a very important task for the G20 to take on. But to establish its legitimacy to do this, it would need to do what Cecilia is saying. It would need to invest more in institution building within the G20 process, such that these institutions collectively could proceed towards harmonizing outcomes. At the moment, the G20 is overwhelmingly dominated by ministries of foreign affairs. And you might think ministries of finance, but I can tell you coming from the Ministry of Finance, they are disengaging. Because the, 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 the business of adding dots and crossing T's that is part of summitry, which diplomats are comfortable with, is not core business in ministries of finance or central banks. There are other fora where we can discuss things and make progress, and that is where we are going. So this has to be reclaimed, because you will not get a solution to the COVID crisis until you get a solution to the macroeconomics of the COVID crisis and its link to a progressive globalization. So if we were able to stick with this agenda and not bring in distractions, and the G20 was able to harness its considerable intellectual, political, bureaucratic, and other resources to demonstrate that it has an offer to make, which is distinct from that of other multilateral institutions and contributes to, but is distinct from, other multilateral processes such as COPS, then I think the G20 would have a business model, a business plan, and therefore a business case. So if I were to be advocating for reform, I'd be advocating for the Troika to work in a joined up way to deliver this. And that at the moment is not happening. One lives in hope. Thanks, Ratan. Um, Cecilia, can I can I invite you to, to think about this question about reform and whether there's something about the way the G20 works that could be improved? Well, uh, as, I, as I was saying, we are in absolutely uncharted territory at the global level. I would like to, to focus on, on three, maybe basic, but I think relevant uh, ideas, uh, which I kind of anticipated and I think that uh, my colleagues have also mentioned. Um, the first one, I, I believe that closer coordination with the UN bodies is very important. Uh, the WTO, clear, uh, sorry, the, um, the World Health Organization, WHO, uh, in relation to the COVID vaccine uh, and, and all the UN uh, bodies. I think this is an area where the G20 can uh, work better. 
taking also the ideas, the proposals, and the agenda that is being pushed at the UN to enforce and to give legitimacy, more legitimacy to the G20. So I think that that's one area where the G20 can continue doing better. I think that another area is to really continue making progresses on the key issues to tackle the global crisis that we're facing. As I said, health, of course, on the vaccine, but also number two, debt. Uh, this crisis uh, is also a very important opportunity to rethink the international financial architecture. There are very interesting conversations going on at the G20, at the IMF, at the World Bank on how to move forward uh, into a new debt agenda to help uh, middle-income countries and low-income countries recover debt sustainability. There's no way uh, developing countries will be able to fully respond and attend the necessities of the pandemic and of the reconstruction and of the recovery if they don't have more fiscal space, if they don't have more uh, resources to deal with this. And this requires, again, to talk about international fair, international taxation to be more fair, one issue, and debt sustainability to be recovered. So I think that the agenda that is being now on this part in terms of debt treatment and how to deal, not only in terms of the suspension, initiative, but also towards a framework that is more ambitious in terms of debt treatment is very important. And I think that's an, an area, again, where a lot of uh, contribution can, can be made. And the third one, um, so the first one is more co coordination with the UN. The second one is focus on key issues like uh, debt uh, issues. And the third one, uh, I think, is really learning about the, the things that worked and didn't work in the previous crisis. Uh, to do things better. Now, I see that process going on. It's a difficult process, uh, but I think that uh, the lessons in terms of inclusion and environmental sustainability are being incorporated into the agenda. And I look forward for the Troika. I agree with that. Uh, with Italy uh, leading uh, in the next year, we'll move on this agenda as well. Thanks, Cecilia. Um, John, would you like to come in on this question of reform? A lot of the suggestions that have been made so far, I would say, relate to policy substance, to go back to Cecilia's point. Um, and except maybe for the Troika point, which maybe has more of an institutional dimension. Would you concur it's mainly the substance here or is there is there some institutional tweaking that's needed? Uh, John, I think you're on mute. Start with um, uh, the Troika. I've got a big five. First, G20 leaders should meet more often. They should uh, be held, uh, their summits, at least twice a year, as they were from 2008 to 2010. But then they um, dropped back to one a year. So G20 leaders should come out of semi-retirement and go back to full-time work. Specifically, they should have an emergency summit in early 2021, soon after um, January um, 20th, and they should add a permanent one each September at the UN to address the Sustainable Development Goals every year. And if they did that in the nest of the UN, I would predict, based on the evidence, that they would make more commitments and comply with the more to advance the sustainable development goals, which are the great global consensus on how we make globalization work for all. Secondly, they should meet for longer 
uh, then they um, usually do 24 uh, hours, and a third of them, uh, they're asleep. And when they're uh, at the summit table together, uh, their speeches are far more scripted uh, than they are in the uh, G7. So they need more time to find out what's really on each other's minds. And as Rathajan properly said at the beginning, to invent new initiatives on the spot, spontaneous combustion, and to bond as a cherished club. Third, they should add as full members alongside the heads of the IMF and World Bank, the head of the United Nations, the Secretary General, and the head, the Director General of the World Health Organization, and probably uh, the United Nations Environmental Program too. Fourth, they should make their de facto secretariat that they invented in 2009, the Financial Stability Board, they should make it now a sustainable financial stability board with the central mission, staff, and powers to foster climate finance. And they should do the same for their second uh, secretariat invented at Brisbane in 2014, making now a global sustainable infrastructure hub. And fifth and finally, they should mandate many ministerial meetings by many different ministers before and after uh, the summit. The evidence shows that if you have a ministerial meeting on that subject, compliance with the leaders' commitments on those subjects goes up. And it's only been in the last few years that they started to hold health ministers' uh, meetings uh, and uh, indeed environmental uh, ministers' uh, meetings too. So these are doable institutional reforms, almost all of which they've done before, and they work in producing the policies and the delivery, the compliance, that is uh, the first big step towards getting uh, the results and saving lives. Thanks. Um, thanks, John. Um, we're sort of now in the in the open Q&A uh, session. And um, I mean, John, I, I want to bring Ruthen in to address that that last, no, the third point, I think, which was about bringing in other UN bodies and the WHO and, and more actors, linking it more to the sustainable development goals. Ruthen, you seem to argue the reverse, a more narrow focus on on the financial and economic side. So I just wanted to have you maybe respond to that and whether you think that that really is broadening the agenda, broadening the, the actors is, is the way to go. No, I, I guess what I'm saying here is that the G20 needs to achieve something that is tangible. And if it sticks to its original mandate and is able to achieve something there that is tangible, need not just be a narrow Ministry of Finance goal. I mean, a very tangible goal now is that you need vaccines and other things to be a public good. Define that as your mission and then do what it takes to, and if it means interacting with the WHO, fine. You know, President Trump wouldn't have wanted to, so you'd have to overcome that. But, uh, you know, uh, deal with them. But, but then the G20 also exists to say, in my view, that if the President of the United States takes the United States out of the WHO, then that will not impede because we are G20, right? the search for a global public good when it comes to COVID. 
it has if it is going to be a summit level thing it has to transcend the limitations imposed by multilateral politics elsewhere otherwise it is not an effective organization if it is bound by those limitations it might as well not be there i agree with what john is saying about the leaders meeting more often that would be a very good idea but then you have to come up with something light and imaginative the biggest millstone around the g20's neck in terms of summit diplomacy is the difference between if you like since john at least is a political scientist and i've some reading of political science and sure cecilia does between the sort of conferences you saw that brought about bretton woods or yalta or the end of the second world war you didn't have ministries of external affairs buzzing around roosevelt and churchill and stalin dotting eyes and crossing the diplomats are terrible they are the undertakers of any imaginative process and this funeral pyre that has been created in the g20 by the preponderance of ministry of external affairs diplomats surrounding the principles and creating or replicating a united nations like diplomatic event is not the sort of summit that is going to work it will have to be a pick up the phone and let's do a summit kind of summit which means that countries like the us or the uk or france we have to take the initiative and say okay we we, we rotate the g20 annual summit every time but then there is an emergency like president obama did and by gotten round it i'm picking up the phone i'm holding a summit let i'm putting in a political capital will you join me if the international system has the space and the willingness to do that then summit diplomacy would help my call is the international system today does not have that space or the energy so i'm saying the g20 should recalibrate and try and rebuild that energy by achieving tangible goals for which i think the troika needs to come up with a single goal across the presidencies and we have one staring at us in the face and go out and achieve it irrespective of other people other bodies other institutions other processes that would be adding value thanks ratan i want to bring in a few questions that have come in from the audience so i have two here and um and maybe the best way to handle this is to have each of you sort of reflect on them and then um and have you respond for about a minute each um so one of the questions is you know given um the the election of 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 Joe Biden in the US as presidential uh, president elect um what do we need to ensure that the US realigns its position as a global diplomatic leader so is the election sufficient um or or not really and then the second question was um the need to engage civil society um and you know what what do you think are the challenges to the G20's communication strategy currently and and what do, what do policymakers need to do to empower civil society to hold um the G20 accountable so two questions i'm happy to open the floor to to either any anyone on the panel who'd like to start anyone have any thoughts to the role of civil society um communication strategy uh, of the G20 and holding um the G20 accountable okay john yeah uh, very quickly uh, number 1 um the Joe Biden question look i spoke about ministerial meetings our finance ministers uh, have met longest uh, and uh, most our leaders uh, meet uh once or twice a year why couldn't the ones just between them let's call them vice presidents or deputy prime ministers why weren't they meeting the g21s regularly uh, since uh, let's say uh, 2008 and if so 
then by 2009, uh, you would have had um, Joe Biden, Vice President Biden, meeting his counterparts for the uh, eight years. So it'd be able to hit the ground running, uh, whatever um, Donald Trump allows the GSA to do um, uh, today. In Canada's case, we're lucky because our finance ministers is our deputy uh, prime minister, uh, right? But not all countries are um, in such a good place. So that's one institutional reform, uh, right? Uh, a forum for the number um, twos. On um, civil society and uh, due disclosure, I'm heavily involved as many are in these uh, engagement groups, primarily the uh, Think 20. Uh, this year, the major uh, formal um, eight engagement groups have flooded um, our G20 governors a few weeks uh, before their summit with over 370 recommendations that they have to read um, several PhD dissertations to find out what's really being recommended inside. So we do need, I think, uh, a process of a synthesis where um, a group can come up with the top 20 the biggest uh, and the um, best. So the engagement groups, I think, need to get their act um, together if they're really going to uh, have the leaders do what they um, collectively tell them to. Thanks, John. Anyone else? Rathan? Yeah. No, just the first question. The second, I'll defer to Cecilia because I thought her articulation was really clear and I completely support what she said. Uh, I think people have to recognize something sitting here in Asia. There is a great power contest going on, and you will find that the United States is investing a considerable amount of political capital in getting to. Uh, have you ever heard of Operation Malabar? Have you heard of the Quad? So the Quad and Operation Malabar are where the United States has been investing its political capital, hand over fist, in creating naval forces in the Indian Ocean region, complemented by other countries like Britain, which have explicitly said that they want their foreign policy to have. I quote, an Indo-Pacific tilt. This has nothing to do with human progress. This has to do with old-fashioned Cold War fears. And therefore, a lot of the political capital of the United States, I don't think this is going to change with Mr. Biden, is going into creating strategic alliances to deal with the emergence of China. And China's attempts, which are fairly successful in my view, and now trespassing into Professor Curtin's territory, for international relations, that do so anyway, but rather successful. And the outcome of that was the BRICS, the outcome of that was the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, and other plurilateral or multilateral, if you will, initiatives that sought to redefine stuff. Then we moved into a phase where China went into Belt and Road and Africa, where it left behind other paths, plus its rather aggressive attitude in the Indian Ocean which has then led to the United States seeing an opportunity and in investing in political capital. You can see that in the transformation of the relationship that at least two countries have had in this context. One is India and its complete changeover from 2005 in the breaks to now. And the other is Australia, which was actively pitching with China and then was supposed to. I'm not commenting on good, bad or what the Chinese could have done differently, but that's a fact of the matter. So I think this will limit the U.S.'s ability to realign itself on good things as a global diplomacy leader, because the entire backdrop of the Indo-Pacific is creating circumstances in which the political capital is hemorrhaging into that area. 
Cecilia, perhaps you want to come in, yeah, and address the civil society point. Thanks. Well, you know that uh, today in Argentina, it's the National Activist Day or something like that. I don't know how you will uh, translate it. It's Dia Nacional de la Militancia. And I, I strongly believe in, in activism, you know, in, in civil society, political parties, young, old, all genders, uh, mobilizing, uh, pushing for, for policies that they believe in. And uh, in a way, this is also something that we need uh, at the global level, of course. Uh, so that's why I was saying that the role of civil society, I think, is so important in terms of putting new ideas, pushing for, more, for these new ideas at the national level. Because, again, the G20, the UN, the World Bank are member-driven institutions. So at the national levels, with your own leaders, with your own politicians, but also, of course, at the global level through think tanks and fora like this. But for this to be effective, I very much support what John was saying. I will strongly recommend getting to a short list of actionable policies uh, that is manageable, that is implementable, that is feasible, because this is a moment in which uh, there's a lot of openness for new ideas. And I think that new, feasible, actionable ideas may have a way, you know? as world leaders are looking to, to ways to deal with the pandemic and to ways to deal with the economic crisis, with the social uh, inequality and, and humanitarian crisis. And, and I want to insist, this is a humanitarian crisis as well. There's hunger in, in many regions of, of our world, very serious hunger situations. So the, the level of the response that is needed is massive. And I insist we need ideas. We need international solidarity, but we will also need financing. Uh, and that's why it's it's so important to think of ways to finance the responses of this crisis uh, to this crisis in, in a more uh, substantive way. Uh, SDRs, taxation, uh, debt uh, treatments that make it more sustainable, um, fiscal policies going to be key. So I, I would like to just conclude saying that one of the things that we need to rethink is the role of the state. I read that uh, FT uh, article, you know, that says governments are going to be more involved in the table. Of course, it's the role of the state, but it's also how we partner with the, with the private sector. So in a way, this is a moment for a new social contract between the governments, the private sector, civil societies, but it's also within the a broad international uh, solidarity agreement. Uh, to save uh, humanity from this pandemic and really come out better from, from this crisis. Uh, a new social contract, uh, that's key. Uh, and that has to be based in, in activism, as always, good ideas, and of course, political leadership and, and power. And, and I trust that we, we can work towards that. Great, thanks. Um, we're coming into the last few minutes of the session. Um, and so I guess, you know, we want to do this lightning round really to, I want to ask each of you in one minute to to give me in that long in that list of priorities because you each had more than one um, of reforms. What would be the top priority? You know, with the view to trying to minimize the number of recommendations and 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 laundry lists, the sizes of these laundry lists. What would be your top priority to make the G20 a more effective fora to address global challenges in particular? So, um, can I start? Uh, who would like to start with that? Ratan, maybe? 
it's very simple for me make sure that your only priority today is resolving the pandemic and addressing the consequences of the pandemic therefore make vaccines a public good make testing a public good make sure that the supply of medical equipment people and the things necessary to deal with the pandemic are not constrained by borders treat everyone in this instance and only this instance in citizens of the globe and make the financial arrangements and the other institutional arrangements to make this happen effective the consequences of the pandemic there you have a lot you could do learning from 2010 bring about macroeconomic stability that does not hinder prosperity that brings about a positive sum game in bringing about prosperity understand that inequality and climate change are going to be solutions to this explicate those and most important demonstrate that you will do this and i keep bringing this up notwithstanding what happens in other institutions so the g20's success if trump was still president i'm not sure whether he is or not but assuming he he is still president would be that trump would do from wto but the united states and the g20 will make sure that the goals are listed will happen whether trump withdraws wto or not the g20 has to exist to solve problems that existing multilateral institutions have not solved and despite actions on that front so therefore you need one goal a joint action plan and a willingness as if it keeps seeing to see that this solidarity benefits a club disproportionately and therefore benefits the world it's not altruism if we are able to do this for the pandemic the g20 nations will benefit disproportionately compared to low income countries they will also benefit but as as people who benefit from prosperity the g20 countries will benefit disproportionately that much solidarity we need to see in the g20 otherwise there's very little point in continuing with this with this uh, you know jamboree thanks rathan john your your top priority for reform um too many people are dying um around the world uh, even uh, while uh, we've been discussing the G20 uh, for the past uh, hour and a half here so very specifically Giuseppe Conte the moment you become the president uh, of the G20 uh, it'll be in a week or two from now call another emergency summit uh, in the days after on um, January um 20th and it would focus like a laser beam uh, yes on getting the vaccines out and used as quickly as possible and coping with all of the other uh, health crises that the covid lockdowns um have um caused and i uh, mentioned uh, them uh, as well then move on to the other crises and one uh that deserves a word um thank you just won the uh, nobel peace prize the world food program uh, david beasley food there's a food crisis all right Uh, but Giuseppe Conte has right next door uh, in Rome the head of the FAO, IFAD, and the World Food Program. Uh, so that would be another thing that emergency summit could um, focus on. And there's plenty of places around the world, in G20 countries or beyond, that are COVID-free. So you could do it as a face-to-face -face, uh, encounter. But boy, uh, we don't have another day uh, and body count to lose. Thanks John. And Cecilia, um the final word, your top priority. Well, I, I like very much what Rathina and John said in terms of focusing on delivering 
uh, in this uh, emergency, you know, delivering on the health uh, through vaccines uh, available, affordable, distributed to, to everybody independently of uh, GDP or <laughs> average GDP, per capita GDP. Uh, in terms of uh, the social protection uh, that we need to keep on going. And that's why I was saying uh, we shouldn't uh, withdraw our support early uh, because it, it's very important to keep the, the economic and the social support. And also in terms of uh, thinking how to rebuild back better and what it means to really uh, rebuild uh, and to do it better. Uh, which is not an obvious answer, it's not an easy answer. And that's why I think that we need uh, bold ideas, creative ideas uh, to think forward. But uh, the, this idea of uh, focusing on, on how to deal with emergency in the short, medium term uh, and to get the leaders more often that John was proposing, uh, I think it's also a very good idea. We need more dialogue. Even if the dialogue is difficult, complicated, and sometimes it's hard to get consensus, I think we just need more dialogue and, and, and better breaches between the leaders of the, of the major economies. And the G20 is a very adequate form to promote that, to facilitate that. Uh, and hopefully they will be uh, ready to, to deliver uh, on the huge expectations that rightfully the people of the world have on, on their international organizations. Great. Um, and with that, I'd like to thank the three of you immensely for giving us um, some tremendous ideas to work with um, and for really being um, just a fantastic group of, of experts. Um, I um, want to thank our audience as well for joining us today. Um, I do hope our audience included some of the members of the Troika um, as they consider next steps. And please don't forget to tweet out um, this session using the hashtag G20 Saudi Arabia. Thanks again, and look forward to seeing some of you very soon. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.